0: I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much.
1: Now, the other great thing about orgasms, they can give you easier periods, more regular cycles and relief from menstrual cramps. So there's been studies to show that women who engage in regular sexual intercourse and orgasm regularly they actually have more predictable periods. They cannot, their menstrual cycle will become more regular. The other thing is that in becoming more regular, it's going to boost your fertility. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free?
0: What we do in life
1: echoes in eternity. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard it makes it great.
0: Only love can truly save the world. This is my mission now, forever. Welcome back to The Better Show. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Here we have the second and final installment of my conversation with Dr. Jolene Brighton. If you listened to our conversation last week, you will know that she is full of fire, full of passion, really just explains it the way that it is. It's in very simple uh, to understand terminology. And I think that that is part of her genius because what she studies is not easy. It is not complex, but she has a really great way, or it is complex rather, but she has a really great way of simplifying some of these more complex ideas for everybody to understand. So here in this two-parter, in part two of two, we get into brain health and mood. And this is where we nerd out a little harder. Um, So we talked about the depression studies uh, that came out of uh, Denmark in uh, 2016 and how people on hormonal birth control are more likely to uh, receive an antidepressant or to be um, diagnosed with depression uh, on hormonal birth control pill. And we talked about some of the alterations in the brain pathway. So this may get a little technical, but like I know that you can handle it. We talk about alterations in the tryptophan pathway and how increase, uh, you know, this downstream uh, production of quinoline Acid uh, affects neuro- that it, they are neurotoxic to the brain, and what we see, especially in depressed uh, depressed patients uh, in these postmortem studies, as well as Alzheimer's patients, is of course we see higher levels of quinolinic acid in their brains when we look at their prefrontal cortex. And who is the population that is ha- is higher has a higher uh, incidence of depression and Alzheimer's? you, sh- uh, you know, you guessed it, it's women. So we talked about that. We talked about the impact of the hormonal birth control on sexual health. So we talked about some of the changes that can happen, uh, in, uh, phys- like physiologically and structurally. So we talked about, um, uh, Know, muscle pain and weakness, vaginal wall atrophy, pelvic floor muscle degradation, uh, poor lubrication, things like that. And then we got into the conversation around why orgasms are so important. So, this is where we had a lot of fun and really talking about, you know, what constitutes foreplay for women, why orgasms are so helpful. And she gave us her David Letterman top 10 reasons, which was really great. And then, of course, I added in like probably the most boring reasons after her. So, hers were much more shiny and much more interesting than my very boring you know, oxygenation and respiratory rate and parasympathetic activation, but she had some really great ones. And then we moved into fertility. So we talked about changes in testosterones, progesterones, and estrogens on the pill. Uh, we talked about why that happens. So we talked a little bit of physiology specifically around sex hormone binding globulin. And then we got into a conversation around the microbiome. So if at all, uh, the hormonal contraception has an effect. Does it have the capacity to alter the gut microbiome and when we and and the vaginal microbiome? So we talked about that, and we talked about the different types of uh, birth control, so we talked about uh, progestin only we talked about uh, combinations and which are the ones that uh, she prefers. We talked about. Um, supplementation. So, you know, both her and I share the philosophy that you cannot out-supplement a bad diet, but you also must uh, supplement when you are on hormonal uh, contraceptives. So we talked about uh, her best practices for, you know, the minimum viable product that every woman who is on the pill should be supplementing with. And then we we got into her, you know, the crux of her uh, of her work. So we talked about post birth control syndrome, what it looks like, what it feels like, what you can expect when you are first coming off of the pill. And then we talked about some of the alternatives for contraception. So we talked about something that I wasn't really previously aware of. We talked about something called the fertility awareness method, and from my limited understanding, uh, it is. Much more prevalent in Europe, not so much in North America, but she walked us through what uh, FAM, for short, fertility awareness method, is, and how you can do it. And really, her whole through line was you know, hormones are your superpowers. And I really love that as uh, a woman who has struggled with her hormones in the past, and for the, you know, in terms of clinical practice, what I've seen, uh, hormones really are our superpowers. And it's only when we can really lean in and honor our biology embracing things like having better sex and having more orgasms and having the courage to listen to your body and have the opportunity to heal. So this was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So without further ado, the second half of my conversation with Dr. Jolene is such So this is a perfect time to segue into brain and mood because we're talking about uh, neuroplasticity, myelin sheath, a good time to circle back to that Danish study. So there was a 2016 study that came out of Denmark and I actually pulled it uh, in just in preparation for our conversation. I just wanna read the abstract and then we can do a deep dive into it. Totally. So in a nationwide prospective cohort study of more than 1 million women living in Denmark, an increased risk for first use of an antidepressant and first diagnosis of depression was found among users of different types of hormonal contraception with the highest rates among adolescent girls.
1: Mhm. And you know what happened when that study of over a million women came out? There were lots of people lining up to say it wasn't that good of a study. It was just an epidemiological study and therefore it's not causation and let's dismiss it. Yet this was the first study in history that really validated what women have been saying. Since the early trials in the 50s and since the introduction of birth control in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And it very much uh, led the way these researchers went on, and what they found is staggering. So, we understand from that study in particular that if you started hormonal birth control and it was the combination pill, you were 23% more likely to be prescribed antidepressants. But here's the thing the combination pill. Teens were eighty percent more likely to develop. What is, the com- what
0: is the combination pill? Is that synthetic uh, yes. estrogens and progestin? Yes, what? it is. Okay.
1: Compared to the what we call the mini pill, which is the progestin only, which doesn't okay. do better. Because and we thought it. We thought we this is what we like to do. We're like vilify estrogen. It's the synthetic estrogen that's the troublemaker. Except that women taking the progestin only pill were thirty four percent more likely to be prescribed an antidepressant. Wow. And teens taking the progestin-only pill saw a two-fold increase in their risk of depression. Now, where it gets really scary is when we start looking at the suicide risk. Because in young women, I I mean, really, when you think about this makes sense, I've had some people say, well, why is not that teens and young women are at the biggest risk? Their brain hasn't finished developing. In fact, the brain doesn't finish its maturation cycle until our Mm mid-20s. And there's a brilliant researcher, Dr. Geraldine Pryor, who is calling attention to the fact that it really takes 10 years for the HPO axis, that's the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis, or how your brain talks to your ovaries, takes 10 years for that maturation cycle to really be solidified. So what are we doing with hormonal birth control when we go in and we disrupt this? Now, I'm not advocating for teen pregnancy, and I'm not advocating that we get rid of birth control, but I am advocating that we have the informed consent. Because young women who use hormonal contraceptives have three times the risk of suicide. And teens double the risk of suicide after one year on the pill. And this, but overall, the suicide risk peaks around two months from beginning hormonal birth control. Mm -hmm. So what could we do better? What could we do different? One is your doctor could tighten up the reins on your follow-up in those first two months. And I know this is hard. I was a teenager once too. We never listened to adults. It's the worst. Mm -hmm. In those first two months, making sure you're following up and you're doing a screening, a depression screening exam, which is a questionnaire. And it's not the most objective. So for people to understand, psychiatry isn't the most objective. Um, There are some things that are, I mean, of course, right? We're talking about human emotions and, and the doctor's beliefs already, and there's all these things. So in this though, it is something we could do. We can do a screening questionnaire before she starts horm- hormonal birth control and understand that if she has a personal risk of anxiety, depression, OCD, like any of these, you know, what to get deemed psychiatric conditions or she has a family history of it. So maybe her mom had postpartum depression. She may not be the best candidate or we may need to really keep an eye on her. The other thing that we can do so we can follow up with her at four weeks and at eight weeks and do the screening questionnaire because we know it's going to peak then. But we could also tell her, if you're not going to tell your mom or dad that you're taking hormonal birth control, can you tell a friend? And tell your friend to look out for these things. If you're dodging their texts, not answering your phone, if you're no longer on social media, if you aren't showing up to classes or you just don't care about the things you used to care about, if you are no longer chatting about that cute boy's butt or whatever, like if your behavior changes and you're falling out of love with your life, the joy's being diminished. Maybe you're more lethargic. You're speaking slower. If we can tell her, here's the list, give it to your best friend. If they notice this, have them bring you back immediately because you may be at risk. Like this is what we can do differently to ensure that we keep women safe. And when we recognize that teens are actually, it's really sad. You're a mom too. I hate to say this out loud, our modern age teenagers are at very high risk for suicide mm-hmm. and very high, high risk for self-harm. And part of that is bullying and part of that is social media. And, and part of that is the way we all have to work. Like there is multifactorial, but we add birth control into the mix and all this, it might be the drop in the bucket that causes it to overflow. And so we have to have these inconvenient conversations so that we can keep our daughters, our sisters, our future mothers safe.
0: And I think, um, you know, to your point, The subjective questionnaires are, you know, you can find the DAS online, right? So, and what we'll do, we'll link to the so DAS is Depression Anxiety uh, Stress Questionnaire. So we will uh, link to that in the uh, into the show notes as well. And that's just like
1: brilliant. Thank you.
0: Yeah, very easy. Um, I have a question for you, and it relates to uh, in terms of the mood disorders and depression. Do you think that it has to do when we're talking about inflammation and and the you were talking about serotonin? The tryptophan pathway, when we talk Mm -hmm. about the sort of the down, or I should say maybe the activation of the kynurinine axis with inflammation disorders, do you think that that has something to do with it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay, so whether it, now I, this is again where there's like two camps. There's the cytokine theory of depression, and then there's the serotonin theory of depression. Right. And you know what? It's probably both. And, it's and little, pr- I mean, something is, we've never even thought right, of. Right. Right. Yeah. So we've known for a long time that uh, the pill specifically does disrupt the tryptophan pathway, and this makes sense, right? Because not only is there inflammation, but there's lack of like magnesium and B vitamins and things we need to actually get into serotonin and get into melatonin. Mm -hmm. So we know that women on hormonal birth control, they actually will make more uh, basically neurotoxins in their Mm -hmm. brain. They don't make the yummy nourishing molecules. They should. They make more neurotoxins. And that's coming from that tryptophan pathway. And there's actually, so people people are going to read beyond the book, beyond the book, beyond the pill, the book. Beyond, the-
0: <laughs> beyond the book. That's the next book. <laughs> yeah. so,
1: uh, I, I have a whole section of like, what, is, what does turkey have to do with your mood? And I'm yeah. just being funny because everybody's mm-hmm. like, you eat turkey and it has tryptophan and that's what makes you sleep. And mm-hmm. uh, read the book. I'll tell you what's really going on. But in that, the tryptophan pathway, what a lot of clinicians will do is they'll come in and they'll say, oh, well, it messes with the tryptophan pathway. There has been studies done that says women using hormonal birth control need more tryptophan. So they come in with more tryptophan, except what did they do? They just fed the top of the funnel, which is going into neurotoxins. So that's not the answer here. Perhaps using 5-HTP because it it skips that step and it can't go in that pathway. Mm -hmm. But really, if you're struggling with your mood, then that birth control is not working for you. And the answer is not to bandaid it up with some amino acids. The answer is really switch a formulation, switch the type. Now, You know, when they've done these studies uh, with mood alterations, IUD, mini pill, pill, patch, NuvaRing, they all are associated. Like, look, if you are going to flood your system with artificial hormones and the brain is rich in receptors for those, it's going to elicit an effect. And what we really need to be asking now is not, oh, are women telling the truth when they have anxiety or depression when they start birth control? That's not the right question. Okay. They've been telling us for decades and they Mm -hmm. are very good teachers. The question is, why her not her? How can we be more predictive of this? How can we screen for this? How can we manage this? How can we make sure that no woman has to be crippled by these mood symptoms? Because what we tend to do is we get right into the mirror and say, you're broken. It's all you. And then we go to our doctor and maybe they hear us and they help us, or maybe they say, you're right it is all you, it's all in your head. And now let's go ahead and put you on a mood-altering medication and muddy the water even more so we can't be sure what happened. So understand though, for women listening, I've had patients who fail the pill, so to speak, and get on a new formulation and now their mood is better. I've gone through this myself personally. I've had patients who get an IUD and they feel manic they feel anxious, they can't sleep, and then they switch to a ring and they have no issues. So mm-hmm. the thing is, is that not all formulations and not all types of hormonal contraceptives will affect every woman in the exact same way. And so if you're like, I'm not going to do the copper IUD or I'm not going to do FAM or I don't want to use condoms, and you really feel like you need hormonal birth control, but you're experiencing side effects, talk to your doctor about switching. Talk to your doctor about a different formulation or a different form altogether, because that might be all it takes to lift your mood.
0: The reason why I brought up the uh, the tryptophan pathway as it relates to brain and mood disorders is when we look, and this is also just for the nerds that are listening, they're like, I know what that is. What is she talking about? We know that depression and Alzheimer's, these yeah. tend to, they tend to run in... I mean, of course, men have depression, men, you know, there's men that have Alzheimer's, but in terms of the incidence rate, it's much higher in females. So mm-hmm. one of the things that we know about the kynurenine pathway is that we have more of that neurotoxin, that quinolinic acid that you're referring yeah. to. And when we actually look at, you know, postmortem, when we look at the brains of depressed patients and Alzheimer's patients, we see an increased concentration of that neurotoxin. So if you I really t-
1: appreciate you bringing that up. Because 66% of the Alzheimer's patients are women. And when that study came out, I was like, hold up. I got to question what role hormonal birth control has played. Because Mm -hmm. as I told you, it's messing with your nutrients. It's increasing the quinolinic acid. So that's a neurotoxin. So it's Mm -hmm. messing with your tryptophan pathway. Because you don't get progesterone, you don't get basically GABA receptor stimulated. So you get that chilled out, that calm factor. Mm -hmm. We've got the issue with the myelin sheath for the non-nerdy people. If you ever saw an ugly orange extension cord, that orange is your myelin sheath. That plastic coating is how you transmit electricity and you don't get shocked. Good thing. It's also mm-hmm. how I'm talking right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm moving my hands because I'm a luteinan and we have to move our hands. This is like what we do. Um, so in that though, to also understand that, uh, so there's the inflammation piece. There's uh, what happens with neuroplasticity. What happens uh, structurally, we see changes in the brain. But Mm -hmm. here's the thing that like, I feel like Dr. Sarah Hill and I are the only two people who have been really talking about this loudly. Your cortisol remains elevated while you're on birth control. So you are in this constant state of feeling stressed from a physiological level. Elevations in cortisol kill brain cells. Again, as an entrepreneur, a doctor, a mom, it is very inconvenient for me to say that elevations in cortisol kill brain cells. Now, the good news is it's not like the 1980s, this is your brain on drugs and they're frying an egg and you can never get it back. You can actually get it back. Uh, The brain is amazing in that way, but you have to know this and identify this. And that's why there's an entire chapter in my book, just about adrenal and thyroid function as well, because every single system of your body is impacted by hormonal birth control, and so that's just another piece. Is that okay? Cortisol is remaining elevated in the brain. Neurotoxins are up. Inflammation's up. We're not making neurotransmitters in the same way. The shape of our brain is changing. We're actually seeing that, like you know, the myelin sheath can't be built in the same way. We don't have neuroplasticity, and so we have to question. We've had the introduction of hormonal birth control. Can I say? That's causing Alzheimer's and dementia? Absolutely not. Will we ever say that's the cause? I really doubt it because we know this is one of those conditions that's multifactorial. So, you know, now we're starting to see that what grows in your gut is messing with your brain, not just your mood. And then these beta amyloid plaques are actually folded up and packaged up in the brain and they travel via the vagus nerve. We also know that this is the most toxic time in history to be a human on the planet and environmental toxins they really do impact the human body and the human brain. But as women, we are set up For estrogen, and so xenoestrogens, these environmental toxins, they can impact us greatly. And we also know from the research that you know, just uh, we take alcohol as an example. And by the way, guys, like you can know these things and make an informed decision. So you, I know that alcohol raises estrogen and raises inflammation and can upregulate inflammation in the female brain. And I will still have a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. People who can see me right now, my nails are painted this mm-hmm. is not the least toxic nail polish. It was like middle of the road, but I made an informed decision to right. get my nails painted anyways, because mm-hmm. I was going to hang out with you in Canada. You know <laughs> she's always, she's we always had a honestly. good time.
0: We had a good time <laughs> yeah, when you were here. <laughs> totally.
1: But this is what I'm talking about. Is like The conversations don't have to be fear-based. They don't have to be all or nothing. And we can make these informed decisions. But if you don't know in you know how can you make the decision and if you know that you have a family history of alzheimers and dementia or you have a history of head injuries you know these different things that we know can lend itself to dementia in the future you're probably going to want to act differently because in fact there's a great study on soccer players who get lots of head injuries Showing that where they were at in the menstrual cycle was predictive of post concussion syndrome, which wasn't called post concussion syndrome back then. I'm not even sure if that's actually a well accepted medical term at this point, but we know that it exists. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that if you were menstruating or in the follicular phase, then and you had a hand injury, you were more likely to recover a month later. Whereas if you were in the luteal phase, you were less likely to recover and have some deficits a month later. What's the difference? Well, if you had a head injury pre-ovulation, you had progesterone coming in for the win to help calm down inflammation, help with water retention in the brain, and to support the healing of the brain. Whereas if you were already in the luteal phase, you were on the decline with progesterone and it was about to hit down maybe in a week or two weeks at the lowest it's going to be. And then you would have to wait another two to three weeks for it to rise again that head injury might make it that your brain doesn't signal to ovulate in the same way. Right. So this is just really oh, that's
0: interesting. We can
1: look at yeah. this other information and say, wow, mm-hmm. progesterone alone is so neuroprotective and healing for the brain. So this is the kind of information that I really want to get out into the world. I appreciate you letting me talk as much as I am, because we can do better when we know. But when we don't know, then we're flying blind and there's no good instruments for that.
0: Right. Let's close the loop that we had in the beginning of the uh, conversation. Let's talk about sexual health. And Ooh. because I know, and I, I, know you, I know you have a lot I'm to just say. I'm just laughing.
1: I'm such a dork. For people who don't know me, hi, <laughs> my name is Dr. Brighton and I'm... <laughs> A dork.
0: <laughs> I'm a card carrying member of yeah, Dorks Anonymous. Yeah. I
1: think you saw my post I did on Facebook who's like as a card carrying vagina holder. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I always will be. Yeah, always gonna be a member of that club. So let's talk about let's talk about sexual health in terms of, you know, I think that a lot of people get into, uh, or couples may subscribe to the idea of hormonal contraception because they're like, woohoo, we're going to have all this sex and there's going to be no consequences. But often there can be, we'll call it sexually antalgic behavior. So can you maybe walk us through some of the changes that we might expect in terms of our sexual health and libido?
1: hmm And I, I like your choice of words because I really hate sexual dysfunction. When women mm-hmm. are like, oh, you know, the doctor says, oh, you have sexual dysfunction. What you actually have is a physiological adaptation to an artificial medication. That's so right. Let's yeah. deem this a little bit differently. Okay. So here's the thing. When you use hormonal birth control, it is a high enough amount of hormones to feed back to the brain and tell the brain we're good. We don't need any hormones. So don't talk to those ovaries. Just shut it down. Mm-hmm. And when you're flooded with this, these many hormones, your liver will respond to keep you safe by elevating sex hormone binding globulin. This is a protein, exactly what it sounds like, grabs onto sex hormones. It does this to keep you safe. And yet the story, like so much of women's bodies go, is that this is your body betraying you. No, no, no. This is your body keeping you safe because all of those hormones circulating around would be a really bad thing if they could stimulate everywhere that they possibly could. So mm-hmm. but in gobbling up sex hormones, it's gobbling up testosterone. Now, studies have shown that while you're on the pill, there's a down regulation in ovarian production of testosterone, sometimes as much as 50%. So you make about 50% less testosterone, which is great if testosterone is causing you acne, oily skin, and hair loss. Not so great. If you want to be sexually active and this is really the sneaky way that birth control works is that it shuts down that production well it diminishes it then it elevates sex hormone binding globulin so that you grab onto that testosterone and now you're not getting the same stimulation now we often think about testosterone for libido but to tie it back into mood we also have to remember that testosterone. I call it the wake up, kick ass, repeat hormone because
0: mm-hmm.
1: when when do women have the strongest boundaries in their menstrual cycle? That is leading up to ovulation when testosterone's on point, and we're a little less timid and we're a little more like, "That's my boundary." That's my oh, line.
0: that's I'm when I love to go. I love to go hard in the gym like that yeah. day seven to call it. Four, oh, maybe 13 or 14, yeah. that's when I love to power lift. And that's totally. when I, yeah, yeah.
1: You can. I saw your Instagram videos, by the way. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I actually will <laughs> watch some people's Instagram of like the exercise they're posting. I'm like, I bet this is where they're at in their menstrual cycle. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing for women listening. You don't need me or anyone like me to tell you how to move in your body, how to eat during your menstrual cycle, how to think, how to be, none of it. You know this intuitively. It's already inside you. You just have to pay attention and mm-hmm. document it so you can build that user manual. Mm-hmm. And so I just say that because sometimes women are like, oh, I have to do this like perfectly or schedule this at this time. And it's like, life happens. Okay. I am out of ovulation right now. So now my progesterone's coming up. This is why I can't stop talking. I'm very loquacious right now because mm-hmm. <laughs> my vocabulary is on point. Mm-hmm. But last week I was like, Mm, haters be lying, stepping.
0: Yeah,
1: it. shut it down. Shut it down. Not having
0: it. And, and I will so- say that that's why I booked our podcast date for today because I knew that you were going to be super chatty. You no, know, I, I wish I knew that. <laughs> Can you, if no. only we knew, it would be so great. No, yeah. I yeah. mean,
1: there are sometimes where, like, if I control the event, I I will schedule it in that way. But then life happens otherwise, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. instead of being like oh no, I'm on my period. My brain, you know, my vocabulary is not going to be as strong. And like, oh, I'm also not as plump and pretty and perceived as like this pretty creature. Cause yes, we are perceived differently around ovulation. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying that while I'm on my period, I'm just like, okay, so this is where I'm at right now. I can hold space that like, I'm probably going to trip over some words and we can all have a good laugh about it, but I don't have to like get beat myself up or be upset about it. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a bit of, a, <laughs> we just went down the testosterone pathway. But yeah. the other thing I want to say is that it's really important to understand that testosterone modulates inflammation. So there is, there is a propensity to want to vilify hormones and be like, oh, testosterone causes you to have acne and grow hair on your chin, chest, abdomen and oily skin and hair loss. And yes, it can. However, it also is very important for your mood, your bone health, your brain health. And in addition to that, it helps with regulating inflammation. And this is often overlooked um, in medicine altogether. Like this is part of why I think birth control also raises inflammation. Now with that, so we've talked about the sex hormone binding globulin. We've talked about the testosterone piece. But the other thing that can happen while you're on hormonal birth control, you can have higher incidence of yeast infections. So I have a whole vagina story for you guys in my book, which I tried to pull out multiple times. And then it was like, you tell women to share their stories because you never know who's going to heal when they hear them. And here mm-hmm. you are trying to pull your story out. And I had chronic yeast vaginitis to the point where I <laughs> developed an allergy to monostat. Yes, I learned. I learned in my 20s. That's the thing that can happen. Wow. So, you know, if that's happening, who's going to want to have sex when they have yeast infection? It's itching, it's burning, it's painful. And so, and just because you clear the infection doesn't mean that the tissues have completely healed. Because with hormonal birth control, as we were talking about, it's great for having testosterone to build muscle mass, but that affects your pelvic floor as well. Right. That estrogen and progestin is not going to stimulate your tissues in the same way. So, I've seen 20 somethings who are having pain with sex, which is More common, the younger you start birth control, the more likely you are to develop pain with sex and With that, they're having vaginal dryness. Um, Women on birth control absolutely can have vaginal dryness. And then what happens is that they have sex. Sex is painful. Being an organism that wants to survive like they are, their neuronal pathway is now set up to be like sex bad, sex hurts, run away. And so now they're having issues with their partner. They're thinking that they're broken. I've referred out to physical therapists who have then written back in their case reports to me saying your patient's vagina, and, and yes, the internal structure as well as the vulva, the external tr- structure, is actually more closely resembling a postmenopausal woman because and I and they've said I, I see this commonly with hormonal birth control and you may want to rethink that that prescription in terms so, of vaginal
0: wall atrophy like what what are, what are they talking about in terms yeah, of the vaginal yeah. wall
1: atrophy thinning of the labia so mm-hmm. the labia majora will thin as we get older mm-hmm. it becomes more friable as well which uh, for people listening that's I kind of think about it like if you if you need a paper towel for cleaning up water and you use like a tissue paper instead and it just like starts to like rip and fall apart. Mm. It's it's that kind of uh, issue going on. And just for everybody listening, just so you know, Hollywood gets everything wrong about sex and we all need lube. Okay? <laughs> like everybody needs lube. And there is these, there are these windows where like we're lubricated and then there's these windows in our cycle where we're not self-lubricated. So right. um, if that is an issue, there's nothing wrong with you. Hollywood's like he looked at her and then they were having sex instantly and I'm the nerd that's always like where's the condom like that's (laughs) that's how you know I'm in women's health I'm like you just met you have not had STI screening like
0: (laughs) and also for I mean let me just throw this out there like for a woman foreplay is not just when he looks at her you know like I mean that maybe that's a separate conversation it's when he does the dishes it's when he does (laughs) the dishes it's all day long so for the two men that are still listening to this podcast that is yeah.
1: You're talking
0: about orgasms. They're here. They're yeah. Here right okay. Now. So let's um, talk about orgasms. Cause you talked yeah. about pelvic floor, um, that facilitates orgasms. If you have, uh, atrophy or thinning, let me phrase it this way. If a couple decides for the woman to go off the pill, is there more likely or less likely that that couple is going to have more sex and then, and then of course following that orgasms as well?
1: Mm-hmm. So with that, like I said, you know, then you know, if you guys missed it, rewind, listen again. If you got on the pill, then you found your partner, and then you come off the pill, you may report more sexual dissatisfaction because now you're prioritizing the way they look more. You may. Mm-hmm. It might not be true for you. And in that, so coming off of hormonal birth control, if your libido makes a comeback, you're probably going to want to have more sex. But if you're having pain with sex, then you're going to want to avoid it. That's normal. Again, mm-hmm. this is a physiological adaptation to pain. And so you'll want to work with a pelvic floor physical therapist, likely a chiropractor, someone who can work structurally as well, because the muscles are great and we want that muscle tone, but we also need to take care of the bones. As you know, you're a chiropractor. Yes. We, and then we have to take care of what's going on physiologically. So Not all women will see the sex hormone binding globulin decline after they come off of hormonal birth control, and not every woman will have her testosterone come back. So, this is something where I get in and I start working. All the protocols in my book are literally copy and paste from chart notes. So, these protocols in my book were developed in my clinical practice, one on one with patients. And in that, I will say it's going to be more than just working with like all these doctors and practitioners, it's also going to be working with your partner and exploring what works for you. Again, Hollywood gets it wrong. Not everybody likes it the same way. And so there might have to be communication of like, you know, uh, we often, like sex is something that so many people participate in. We kind of take it for granted. But if you are having sex with a male, if you are a woman having sex with a male, that sexual intercourse is inviting someone else's body into your body. Like, just let that sit in, sink in for a second. Like, you have to be relaxed enough to let another human being enter your space. And so, right, right. that is the foreplay we talked about. So, it starts, it really starts women need to feel cared for, protected, like they're safe. And in this man, and yes, I know women be strong, but we still, primarily speaking, need to feel that sense of security. So, yes, yeah. Foreplay is a long game. It also is not abnormal to for it to take 20 minutes or more in the bedroom to. Start to have lubrication and then another 20 minutes to 60 minutes to have an orgasm. That's that's not abnormal, but you have to communicate what feels good and really talk to your partner about what's going on. Now, while in hormonal birth control, if women do achieve an orgasm, sometimes that orgasm hurts. So they can have pain with orgasms. And so Mm -hmm. this is important to recognize that that nervous system can really get set up in a way where it reinforces that this is going to be pain. Now we see this in other conditions where You know, people, the injury is no longer there, but they still have pain. What's going on? The nervous system is still telling them they have pain when they use this limb or do this thing. So, to understand, to hold some space for yourself. And I go through, you know, in the book, I go through steps and all of this. And one of the big things is communicating openly to your partner. While everybody's having sex, everyone's also being told not to talk about sex. And we have to talk about it with our partner, especially. Like, and that's so for some women, they can have an orgasm vaginally. For some women, they can have an orgasm uh, only via clitoral stimulation. And so whatever is true for you isn't wrong. And by the way, because of neuroplasticity and your wonderful hormones, you, you can change, your brain is the biggest sexual organ. You can start to change that and you can start to change. So if you're like, I wanna be able to have a vaginal orgasm, you can get there. You're going to have to work with your partner and it's going to take a lot of like communicating. And I grew up, so like people are always like, oh, you must have grown up in such a like body positive. Like, no, I actually grew up in a really religious household and I was told never to talk about these things. And also mm-hmm. I can get pregnant if someone just looked at me and it's taken, you know, it's me being a doctor being like, we have to hold space to have these conversations. And then being like, okay, this is what I'm telling my patients. No, you better walk. You better walk the talk. Like you've got to go home and talk, talk to your partner as well. Now, the wonderful thing about orgasms, I actually have, I joke that it's my David Letterman, and only if you're old do you get that joke, (laughs) uh, my David Letterman (laughs) top 10 of orgasms (laughs) in the book. Because... I'm a big fan. of, <laughs> You're still laughing. <laughs> I mean, I'm wearing oxytocin around. My neck.
0: I love it. I love it. Let's do the top ten.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd yeah. have to open up the book to get like the top ten in the right order. Otherwise, right. I, I can I can talk about the ones them the ones
0: you remember. Yeah, they don't have to be yeah. in order. Yeah.
1: I know. I'm like, now I pull David David Letterman, um, but you know, pressure on all of that. So you know, with orgasms, I think something I think that is really cool about orgasms. So yes, they release oxytocin. And oxytocin makes us want to bond, be in love with our partner. Um, and, you know, it's, it also gets released through nipple stimulation. It gets released through hugs. It gets through, released through petting your dog. So there's a lot of ways to release oxytocin, but by far the most fun is definitely orgasms. So it can definitely, uh, and oxytocin so I said cortisol gets upregulated while you're on hormonal birth control. And if you're stressed out, like most people are stressed out, I could raise my hand right now. uh, You're bathing in this cortisol that can kill brain cells. The good news is, is that while cortisol is trying to age you, oxytocin comes in to save you Mm -hmm. and will actually support your brain and it will support uh, your tissues in staying healthy and, and young and plump and who doesn't like that, right? So Yeah, you actually, uh, I just pulled up the top 10 because I was like, we have to do this now that I made that joke. So Mm -hmm. number one, you will (laughs) live longer. Okay, but for real, uh, not only is it the oxytocin, but it increases DHEA, which is a hormone produced by the adrenal glands that starts its decline when we're 25. And so, a lot of longevity experts actually believe that's the hormone that starts the programming of cellular death, or in mm-hmm. other words, aging. Nobody likes any of that, right? Like <laughs> we want to live forever. Oh, uh, but in that. Know that DHEA also opposes cortisol and is a great way to protect cells and cellular health as well. Now, with orgasms, you'll also feel and look younger. Uh, The anti aging hormones, again, can help change your complexion. You know, when people are like, oh, I had a roll in the hay and look at how I'm glowing. Yeah, that's a real thing. It's not just blood perfusion, it's not just you're hot and sweaty, it's also all of these hormones.
0: I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout.
1: Now, here's what I think is really cool it can decrease autoimmune symptoms by helping modulate the immune system. So in a woman who is cycling naturally, there's shifts of Th1 and Th2. Now, just to simplify it, Th1, think viruses, bacteria, and most autoimmune disease, but it also can be Th2. And Th2 is really about parasites, but now it's just allergies, asthma, eczema, because not a lot of us have parasites. Thank you for, you know, modern society washing hands.
0: Yes. Thank so, you. Sanitation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. um, for people listening, when, when doctors are like, modern medicine is so advanced and we've never dismissed anything and we're always right because there are some people who believe that. Just going into the history of hand washing and how the guy who was like, yo, I think everybody's dying because your hands are dirty. You just had your hands and some horse poop and now you're, you're doing surgery and maybe you should wash them. And how much medicine was like, you're crazy. We, mm-hmm. should, we should actually like throw you away and lock you up in a cell because you're telling us to wash our hands. Like seriously. Or that so, there's little
0: bugs on your hands that you can't see. Yeah. yeah. You're a crazy
1: yeah. person. It's yeah. so high 2019 and we still have like some of that throwback of like, oh, you're crazy. You're, mm-hmm. you're talking about these side effects of birth control that I wasn't taught in medical school and I know her or I don't know her in the research, but now I'm just going to call you crazy. It's easier. It is easier to call a woman crazy, but you know what? you will underestimate us and we will overcome every time. So autoimmune symptoms. We see the shift uh, that when women are experiencing regular orgasms and presumably sexual intercourse, the body's basically like, hmm, we might make a baby. Let's shift things into that TH2 and downregulate some of that TH1 autoimmunity. Now, anybody who has an orgasm will say you can improve your mood and you can actually reduce anxiety. So Mm -hmm. again, those endorphins that get released and those hormones can reduce your anxiety as well. You can't can't get out of um, headaches anymore. Women, now we have science that says um, (laughs) headaches and migraines, they actually can be helped. So I think it's like 47% of migraine sufferers had complete symptom relief when they had an orgasm. But to understand that there are some very unlucky few that it gets a whole lot worse. They tend to be men, but it can happen for women too. So just so you know, it can help with headache relief, but you do want to just be, be cautious about that. Uh, just in terms of like, if it makes your headache worse, listen to your body before you listen to me. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is that it's going to increase circulation to your pelvis. I don't know about you, but I sit a lot. A lot of modern his, uh, history, uh, modern history, modern society is set up to sit. And so we see issues with like pelvic stagnation, hemorrhoids, vaginal varicosities, uh, which are like hem- hemorrhoids on the vulva, things mm-hmm. nobody tells you about. Um, <laughs> we can add that to the list.
0: Degeneration so of the discs in the low back, change in the neural oh, structure. Like- yeah, all, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: again, I mean, it's a little athletic event to achieve an orgasm and uh, this can help improve circulation of your pelvis. It also can decrease stress and promote relaxation. This is a big reason why men have sex and they roll over and they're like, oh, I'm just going to go right to sleep. <laughs> uh, if you're a woman and you do that too, uh, I'm in the same camp as you. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's go to sleep now. But sometimes women will get like an you know, upswing in energy uh, and that's totally normal as well. But you, it won't be that like wired, jittery, like anxious kind of energy. It's more of that like, all right, I'm chill. I got this. Mm -hmm. Now the other great thing about orgasms they can give you easier periods, more regular cycles, and relief from menstrual cramps. So there's been studies to show that women who engage in regular sexual intercourse and orgasm regularly, and a lot of these studies are defining things as like weekly events. So it's not like you got to go like three, five times a week uh, to achieve this. Um, they actually have more predictable periods. They cannot, their menstrual cycle will become more regular. And the other thing is that in becoming more regular, it's going to boost your fertility. And so having regular sex can boost fertility. And then what I was saying is that they can help you sleep better. So um, I actually think I gave you guys 12, but we hit the top 10. Um, (laughs) I
0: like it. I love it. Yeah.
1: And I can talk about... um, When uh, Dave Asprey, uh, who's a friend of ours, his book came out, Changemakers, and he sent me a copy. And I was like, hey, thanks for the copy. He's like, you're in it. I'm like, cool. So I go in and what is it? Dr. Brayton prescribes orgasms. I'm like, my legacy. I will not be known as the doctor who exposed the truth on birth control. That sounds like a a made for TV movie right there. I will be known as the doctor who prescribed orgasms. The
0: orgasm doc.
1: If people can see me, I'm like, even doing like jazz
0: fingers. (laughs) (laughs) My jazz hands. Dr. O. Call me Dr. O. (laughs) Uh, And I love, I love everything you're saying, the pain modulation. I think it, you know, and the only thing I would add to that is, you know, helps with all of your vitals, right? Respiratory rate, oxygenation, you know, core body temperature, all all that boring (laughs) stuff. parasympathetics and like cerebral, like when we talk about brain health, you know, activating our cerebral cortex as well. So very well said. Yours are far more interesting than mine. So we'll just stay there.
1: (laughs) No, but no, that's good stuff too. Yeah. Like, you know, everybody has a heart. It should be healthy. Yeah, hearts are good. good I like hearts. Hearts and brains. Let's keep them.
0: (laughs) Let's talk. Let's talk a second about the impact on the microbiome. You know, you mentioned Dave Asprey talked a lot about mitochondrial health. Let's talk about the impact of uh, the pill or hormonal contraception on altering the gut microbiome. You talked about hyperpermeability, but also I want to also spend a minute and talk about the vaginal microbiome as well. Mm
1: Yeah. So, what's interesting is that some of the studies have actually compared hormonal birth control to antibiotics in terms of its ability to decimate some of those good guys that grow in our gut. So, this is really important, I think. And for everybody, this is where women got into Beyond the Pill and they're like, what is this, like, liver chapter? And, de- and like, we're talking detox and estrogen metabolism. And oh, and then we're going to talk about gut. Like, I just want to talk about sex hormones. I'm like, your liver and gut ain't right you stand zero chance of having your sex hormones right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is because so here's how it goes for everybody listening my birth control hormone detox 101 chapter it was called liver detox chapter like that's it liver chapter super boring there my publishers they know they know readers they're like make it sexy so i'm like okay birth control hormone detox 101 so this chapter is meant to teach you how estrogen is metabolized whether it be synthetic or your own. But somewhere along the way, some people have gotten confused and they're like, you cannot detox hormonal birth control unless you take boatloads of supplements. No. <laughs> so let's talk about how it works. And this was the intention of the chapter. So when you are done with the estrogen you no longer need, your body packages it up via the liver phase one, phase two, liver detoxification. Mm-hmm. You need all of those, uh, you know, you need amino acids, but you also need the vitamins and some of the things that hormonal birth control is depleting. When it's packaged up, it goes into the bile and the gut to be excreted. Now, some goes via the urine as well. But when we get into the gut, this is where things get tricky because you don't have to have an infection or pathogenic organisms or overgrowth of bad guys, as we call them. It's actually very rare to have like the, the, those kinds of pathogens in your gut. But you can have an imbalance of the organisms that are making beta-glucuronidase. Now, as that bile and that estrogen is being carried out, if it meets beta-glucuronidase, it's going to be reactivated and put back into circulation. And now we have estrogen dominance and more estrogen than our body plan on dealing with. This can happen with synthetic or natural estrogen. And if you're not pooping every day and you're constipated, that actually can lend itself to a higher risk that you're going to have that uh, increase in estrogen. And so that's a very important thing to understand because it doesn't mean... Now, birth control anything, I think that it's really important that everybody understand, anything that messes with your gut microbiome messes with your v- vagina. It messes with what grows in your vagina. It also messes what grows in your mouth. And we are now starting to explore the skin microbiome and it's probably messing with that as well. Now, in that, you, you might have yeast overgrowth, very common in the vagina, also very common in the mouth. And you can have yeast overgrowth in the gut as well. And that is, you know, yeast are opportunistic. We always want to be like, oh, they're the worst. And Mm, you know, we need yeast. We need viruses. We need bacteria. Like we're all best friends until we're not. Mm-hmm. And when we're not, is when we start taking care of those uh, those bacteria. Well, when we start uh, basically diminishing those bacteria, Killing them the off, yeah. yeah. The yeast can overgrow them, yeah. and so that's a bit of what happens with the pH shift and the hormonal shift. What happens in the vagina. And I think it's also really important to understand as clinicians, if you are over and over and over. Treating someone's gut, and that's someone, presumably being a woman on hormonal birth control, uh, for yeast, and they cannot clear this yeast. Send them to a biological dentist and check their mouth. Because the dental research has shown for a very long time that we are at risk of oral yeast overgrowth. And that won't necessarily look like thrush like you see in a baby's mouth. It can be subtle, but that's the place where you're swallowing it over and over and over. We've now come to understand that what grows in your mouth can impact your fertility and also impact pregnancy outcomes. So, your dentist, very important team player in all of this. So that's a bit about like what it does, you know, to the microbiome in terms of the gut. And the other piece I think is really important to understand with gut health and hormonal birth control is that with the pill specifically, it is linked to certain autoimmune conditions. So as we were talking about neurological health, multiple sclerosis, um, lupus, that might present as skin symptoms, but also Crohn's disease. And in fact, a study out of Harvard showed that if you had a family history, so again, we can do screening, we can ask questions, we don't even have to do lab tests to know her risk. If you have a family history of Crohn's or in the inflammatory bowel disease family, mm-hmm. but Crohn's specifically, you have a 300% increased risk of developing Crohn's disease after five years of taking the pill. And they believe it is- How much did you say?
0: Did you say 300?
1: 300. Wow. I know. It, I was shocked. But you know how I came across this? Is after having multiple patients who were getting diagnosed with Crohn's disease and the thing they had common in all of their cases is that they were taking the pill. And so I went into the research and I started looking at this and conversing with my local gastroenterologist. And they were like, We're, you know what? We actually do, yeah, we never ask about like hormonal birth control specifically, but as they started to look in chart notes and it's like, okay, something to this. What do we know? Okay, about autoimmune disease in general. And that's what we're talking about. So for people, mm. this is why the dentist comes in. Crohn's disease may show up as ulcers in your mouth. People call them canker sores. And that Mm -hmm. might be the first place it shows up. The ulcerations can be anywhere in the tube. And this is not just like, oh, you have an autoimmune disease. This is like, you're going to be pooping a lot, not absorbing your food and feeling really, really bad. And it's really, really painful and it can perforate and be life-threatening. So this is definitely get to a gastroenterologist, make sure that they're on your team kind of situation. Now with that, we know that hormonal birth control I already told you, intestinal hyperpermeability. That's step one in developing autoimmunity. Now, step really, step one is you have the genetic predisposition. And step two would be intestinal hyperpermeability. And step three is a triggering event. Mm-hmm. And that step three might be getting pregnant, having a miscarriage, having a baby, getting your period for the first time, going through perimenopause, entering into menopause, or starting or stopping hormonal birth control. Mm-hmm. Because for women... Fluctuations in their hormones are triggering events, and it is no joke to come off of hormonal birth control. You know, it's something that so many people do. That doctors are like, "There's not going to be any hiccups. You'll come off birth control and be fine." And then you've got hundreds of thousands of women, millions actually, being like, "Why am I not fine? I must be broken. Something's wrong with me." That is a huge hormonal shift to make. You have been flooded and flatlined for however long you've been on it, and then you come off, and now your brain's like. Hey ovaries, where you been? Should we chat? And your ovaries like I ain't even trying to hear that right now. And then the Mm -hmm. ovaries are like, Hey, talk to me, talk to me. This is all to say they've got to start figuring out how to communicate again. So we see there's multiple autoimmune conditions associated with hormonal birth control, and specifically in the gut, Crohn's disease. In all fairness, we do see ulcerative colitis, but those women in those studies had a history of smoking. And we know that's linked with ulcerative colitis, so we can't make as strong of conclusions with that because of their lifestyle practices. But if you are using hormonal birth control, it doesn't matter what your family history is, you can't be smoking. No smoking. That's an increased risk for cardiovascular issues and
0: clots. So let's assume that we have somebody who is on the pill right now that's listening. Uh, And for whatever reason, they don't want to come off of it my first recommendation is going to be get your book because I find when I was reading your book for the first time, I was like, wow, this is like a choose your own adventure. It's like, if you have high estrogen, you do this. If you have low estrogen, you do this. High T, you do this. But if we could, if there's like a minimum, you know, a minimum viable product or like a minimum foundation in terms of supplementation, because I I, I wanted to just pick up on what you said before around supplementation. Now, I think that Yes, you can never out-supplement yourself out of a bad diet. However, in the case of hormonal birth control, I think that there is a strong justification for replenishing nutrient loss. So you talked mm-hmm. about B six and the you know magnesium and the selenium. Is there is there a basic recommendation? I, you have your Brighton protocols in the book, but are there basic recommendations for anybody that's like, man, I'm on the pill. I've been on the pill for let's call it five years, ten years. What should they be taking?
1: Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah. To your point, you can't out-supplement a poor diet, but you can't out-diet birth control because the nutrient depletions are vast. Mm -hmm. This has been documented since the 1970s. For everybody listening, I don't know why. This is the one where people are like, yeah, right. There's no research on that. I'm like, when I was getting my nutrition degree, I can still remember the slide because I was on birth control And the slide that went up and showed all the nutrient depletions that come with hormonal birth control. And what was the recommendation then is still the recommendation now. And that is that women be on either a prenatal or a multivitamin. And a big reason for that is hormonal birth control is not 100% effective. It's about The pill specifically is about 91% effective with typical use. That is the way we actually use it. Now, if you are nine out of a hundred women to get pregnant in a year, by the time you know you're pregnant, your baby already needed folate and your baby right. not having folate or B12 or everything else that birth control is depleting puts them at higher high risk for spina bifida and other neurological issues. And so we definitely want to see women who are on hormonal birth control using either a multivitamin or prenatal I advocate for a, um, you know, either a methylfolate or nature folate, but it's got to be folate, not folic acid. Not
0: folic acid, thank you. There yes. are
1: too yep. many people walking around with MTHFR issues mm-hmm. and throwing folic acid in the mix. I mean, this is what I like to say about folic acid: is like, look, if you had a Ferrari, you wouldn't put the cheapest fuel in it. And I would like to think that you're more expensive than a Ferrari. So don't put junk fuel like folic acid in it. Folic acid is, is really developed, I mean, it, to be put to the masses in our food supply in the most inexpensive way as possible. And so that's all it is. is it's cheap and you can't always use what's cheap. And that's the thing where whenever people will say stuff about how expensive supplements are. Like we are I don't know how it is in Canada. We are super, super privileged in terms of the cost of supplements. When I was living in France and my son was sick, getting a two-week supply of curcumin, of turmeric, was about 120 US dollars. It was 90 euros. Oh my euros.
0: goodness.
1: Right? And wow. I'm like, oh my God. And like I get 30, to get, 35
0: bucks here. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, yeah. a month
1: supply. Like yeah, yeah, what yeah. is that? So mm-hmm. to understand that like very much with vitamins, you get what you pay for, especially like with fish oil. Oh my goodness. Um, that's one way, I, why I'm like, oh my goodness, because I'm like, I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of like living on this planet and making sure my child has it as well. Sustainable fishing practices are everything. So with that, you definitely want a multivitamin or prenatal you'd also want to consider like what is going on for you. Maybe you are having issues with inflammation and mood and you want to leverage turmeric and like a high dose EPA, which is a type of uh, fish oil. And I'm going to be very specific with this because I talk about this in my book. If you are a vegan or vegetarian, you need to understand that we as humans are very inefficient of converting the omega-3s into EPA and DHA from plant-based foods. Now, as women, people together, but women especially, we require our natural estrogen to do that. If you are on hormonal birth control, you are not making natural estrogen. Going into that pathway is Going to be almost impossible, and mm-hmm. that's where I advocate for fish oil uh, and getting. And when you do that, you want to find a company that does third party, party testing, screens it, make sure there's no heavy metals, no junk in it, no plastics, that kind of stuff, and is using sustainable fishing practices. Please don't dollar vote for companies that gut fish, grab their liver, and throw them out into the ocean, or do it in an in unsustainable way. And I'm just a really big advocate that if you use Well, if you use anything, let's try to be as sustainable as possible, but especially animal products because dollar voting, and what I mean by that is like putting your dollar to vote for the people who do this. Understand that organic farmers, grass-fed farmers, sustainable fishing practice, like all of that, they're up against a lot, a Mm -hmm. lot to bring you that. And the best way we can support them is to make sure that we allocate our funds to them. And it also makes sure we get the best quality as well. Now, I'd, so the we talked about the prenatal multivitamin, you know, maybe turmeric, fish oil is something to consider with like mood and with inflammation and especially like if you have autoimmunity starting to, to crop up as well. But the thing that I think is really helpful for women is having probiotics and not just like any probiotic, but making sure you have like spore-based probiotics and prebiotics. And I don't think you have to take prebiotics in a pill. Some people do prefer to take them in pills and powders, but this is where your diet comes in because you got to seed the critters and feed the critters. And you want to protect your gut as much as possible. Now, by way of like, should you use glutamine, slippery elm, like other things for your gut, It depends. And you want to work with your doctor about that because, you know, for some people, glutamine is amazing for helping keep their gut integrity intact. But for other people, it makes them anxious. And Mm -hmm. so we just want to be cautious, you know, in terms of supplements, not to go, uh, you know, overboard with things. Always to start with diet first. And the last thing that I would say, though, is that you may want to consider a supplement that supports estrogen metabolism because sub- supplements that are aimed at supporting estrogen metabolism are going to support your liver function and your gut health. So with that, you know, like my Balance Women's Hormone Supplement, it has calcium deglucurate in it. That's because regardless of what's growing in your gut, like we, you, you don't have to know that. It'll help undo that beta-glucuronidase, which reactivates estrogen. Mm-hmm. It contains DIM. Not boatloads. More, more of a good thing is not better. I have women all the time that are like, I took DIM and it made me feel awful. How much did you take? Twelve hundred milligrams. I'm like, uh, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's yeah. too much. We don't want to drop estrogen too quick, but DIM can support estrogen metabolism. And why this is important with hormonal birth control is that when you're on hormonal birth control, because of how it affects your it affects your entire digestive tract, but how it affects your thyroid as well, you don't have sufficient thyroid hormone. You don't have sufficient hydrochloric acid. And if you don't have sufficient hydrochloric acid, then you can eat broccoli sprouts, and y'all should do that anyways. And um, you can eat broccoli and eat all that, but you won't actually get the dim. The whole pathway won't work the way it's supposed to because you needed hydrochloric acid to begin with. But, you know, having um, a supplement that supports estrogen metabolism, it's going to help with your, give your liver what it needs. Supplements are not meant to take over diet and lifestyle or take the place of a medication. They're meant to support what your body is designed to do naturally. And while you're on hormonal birth control, your body can't totally do what it's designed to do naturally if these deficiencies aren't being checked, if your gut isn't being checked, if like your thyroid your cortisol is not being checked. Do you love how the sun is just like creeping up on me? I don't know if people end up watching the video. I was talking, I'm like, there's now it's on my chin. Now
0: it's on your chin. Yeah. And I will I will and
1: it's October. I'm like, what are you doing here, son? You're not supposed to be here until August.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I will, just to your point, broccoli sprouts, they are so cheap. Like you just get some mason jars, you can grow them. And I do this. I grow them on my windowsill and I have about five or six of them. And then I just literally will take the one on day one. And then by the time I kind of get to, you know, day six, the ones on Day one again, like if you like re um, totally replant them, it's like they're already there again. So they're so cheap, you know, and you can get it on Amazon. Like you can yeah, source you can like source organic organic
1: yeah. uh, on Amazon. You can even sprout these in two wet paper towels if you're in college. And this is something that like. You know, I'm I, I love that we have supplements available, but I also love that you bring this up because we have to make sure people everyone has access. And so mm-hmm. you know, part of that is like um, broccoli seeds, broccoli sprouts, those win in the research, you guys, every time. they're yeah. like, who's the winner? Broccoli sprouts again. You can also Always. do other cruciferous, so mm-hmm. you can do uh, kale sprouts, and um, you can do uh, what's that cauliflower? I'm like, what's that white one um, again? <laughs> so you can do these different sprouts as yeah. well. And the other thing too is seed cycling that I talk about in my book, and you know, seeds are incredibly inexpensive; so they are a very economical way to boost your nutrition. And I talk about seed cycling, whether you're on birth control or off, you can use seed cycling as a way to start to get into your rhythm. I had so many women say like, oh, since I like started seed cycling, because I'm actually paying attention a lot more, Like, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. Now, you're not going to find a study on seed cycling. There's no study that's going to be like, this is seed cycling. This is something that was taught to me by my mentor's De- I've been seed cycling for over a decade. They, you know, my mentor, he published a book on, with seed cycling in it like 20 years ago, and that was after like 20 years of practice. I have um, I've had people who write and they're like, "You're the woman who invented seed cycling." I'm like, nobody knows who invented seed cycling. <laughs> it's right. been around a long time, and it wasn't me. Uh, but in the seed cycling, it's using fresh ground flax seeds and pumpkin seeds during your follicular phase, so day one of bleeding until ovulation. We say day four. To Nobody always ovulates on day 14. But this is a great starting place to get to know your body. And then you switch the seeds. And you go into sunflower seeds and sesame seeds. And if you guys want to nerd out on this, I have a really big uh, article at drbrighton.com on seed cycling for hormone balance. And in it, I talk about what we know and what we don't know. I'm very forthcoming. Like when we don't have research, I'm like, there's not a study that says this. This is what we know about the seeds and nutritionally and how they work and how they can support you in your menstrual cycle. And to understand... You don't have to be dogmatic about it and at the same time you know, you know not being dogmatic if you if you mess up something this is an adjunct food as medicine therapy to support you it is not a standalone I have had some major exciting amazing things happen in women's lives that like made me believers in, in like the you know the ability of seeds and yet at the same time just understand that like if your seeds if somebody recommends seed cycling they're generally doing it along with other therapies and other things and it's a practice that they're Bringing in, and it's not going to be. Um, I see sometimes outrageous claims out there where people are like, "If you seed cycle, you'll never get cancer." And I'm like, I "Don't say that. We don't know that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't. What, what is that? Or seed cycling will cure your PCOS? No, seed cycling is not going to cure your PCOS. I, sorry, if I had something that would, I would give it to you. But uh, seed cycling can definitely help with the symptoms, help support your body, and uh, be a very economical way to be able to get access to nutrient dense food.
0: And this is, I I just want to highlight this because you brought up such a great point that I talk about a lot, typically offline, and this is the... This is a delineation between research and information that we see in the literature. You said there's no there's no RCT on seed cycling, but there's a difference between information and clinical application. Mm-hmm. So the clinical application of seed cycling, you have seen a lot of clinical, there's a lot of clinical evidence in terms of case studies and reports that you've had with your patients. And that I think makes the difference between, you know, RCT double blind placebo blah 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 and and results and sometimes you know it is the blend of the information that we have with the understanding of female physiology and the clinical application thereof that gets people results so you don't and I'm a big research nerd I lo- I love the research I'm in PubMed all day every day but I think that there is an art and a philosophy around care for whether it's women's medicine or whatever whatever nerd rabbit hole you're going down that takes into account research, but there's also this clinical sort of intangible aspect to to healthcare as well.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think we also have to recognize that uh, as it stands, the scientific method, while I love it, has limitations in understanding the natural world. And our technology has limitations in understanding the natural world. And our funding has limitations in what we right. actually study. And so, right. you know, and you may never see a randomized control trial on seed cycling, you know, for whatever reason. It's the other thing too with like some of the other studies and, and trials, they're never going to happen because it would be unethical. Now, seed cycling is not unethical, but I just think, I think sometimes we can get kind of angry at doctors and scientists and what's going on and feel like there's a great injustice. But, you know, as I was, we were talking earlier on about, Plan B, and like there's not great studies on it. You know why? It'd be super
0: unethical to do that. Oh, you like, can't have human studies. How can you? How yeah. can you? Yeah. and
1: that's so. Sometimes people will say, "Oh, well, you're basing that. It's based on rodent studies." Well, one, it would be really unethical for us to do this in humans. We can't. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to use an animal model. And two, it's really expensive to do in humans, and we've got to test that first and see is it even worth doing in humans. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration, and I think you're, you know to your point about like there's clinical observation and there's the fact that our patients teach us so much. And, you know, there's, we see this movement towards evidence-based medicine, but for people to understand there's a lot that's being practiced in medicine that goes against the evidence. So I think episiotomies when we talk about women's medicine is one of the most classic examples of despite the research coming out showing it didn't help doing episiotomies didn't help. In fact, it might make things worse. Mm. We still saw the clinical Mm -hmm. practice of it. And so Uh, there's lots of things that happen in medicine. And while they'll say it's evidence-based, it may be based on evidence from the 80s. And so have they read the new evidence or is there actually evidence that is supporting what they're doing now? I think a great example with uh, birth control and uh, breast cancer, is that doctors were saying, well, this is low dose, so the risk is going to be lower. And and this was really coming out of like, you know, pe- this is, this was the story that was being told. And then when the research actually came out, we found out it wasn't a lower risk of breast cancer. In fact, there's still a risk of breast cancer. And what was interesting to me is how flippant people were when people were just, like, like, you saw doctors and experts be like, well, whatever, it's just a mild increased risk, but it helps prevent ovarian cancer. We can say, yes, it helps prevent ovarian cancer. It helps with endometrial cancer. There's a time and a place. And at the same time say, and it increases brain cancer and breast cancer and liver cancer and have those kinds of conversations. Like, and I just think people get, I think they just get uh, a little, like they get just kind of triggered really fast to be like, Mm -hmm. oh, no, something bad was said. But like, that means that like the way I've been practicing wasn't, wasn't in the best interest of my patient. But this is the nature of medicine and science. Like, we're not. Why do most of us get into it? Because we're forever learners. Like, we're never gonna have all of the answers. And I think that's okay. But we again, have to have that humility and curiosity to know that we're not always going to be right and to be curious about the new information that's coming out. But first and foremost, be curious about what our patients are saying, especially when there is no research to support it. When you start seeing the same thing over and over, like when I kept seeing, I went through post-birth control syndrome myself. And then when I kept seeing it over and over, I mean, at first I was like, I'm a freak. Then I was like, wait, it happened to her. Wait, it's happening. Hey, the majority of women are struggling to break up with birth control. Why are we not talking about this? And so-
0: Let's define that. Let's define- yeah. Yeah, let's define, because you're the first person I've ever heard of refer to it as post birth control syndrome. So let's define that for the listener.
1: Totally. So post-birth control syndrome is the collection of signs and symptoms that arise about four to six months after stopping birth control. For some women, it can be much sooner. For some women, it can be much later. And in that, you you can have really any system presenting. So we tend to think that hormonal birth control is isolated to just lady parts. And so if you're going to have issues, that's where we're going to see it. But like I said, every system in your body has receptors for these hormones. So it might show up as gut issues, skin issues like acne, rash. You might have new onset neurological issues like brain fog or memory issues or having migraines, anxiety, depression And you might lose your period altogether. You might have irregular periods. You might find that you're also having issues in terms of your sexual health and your sexual life. And so it can show up in a lot of ways, which I think makes it difficult to recognize. Because not only are there all of these collections of signs and symptoms, but in addition to that... It happens six months, sometimes longer, away from when you stopped birth control. And a lot of doctors have said to me, well, if this was because of hormonal birth control, it would have started immediately. Except she's had that placebo week. She's had that placebo week with a withdrawal bleed. So no, I don't think it would just show up immediately. And if you, anybody who lives with women or is a woman knows, women will power through just about anything until they can't. And then they'll go to the doctor.
0: Very true. That's so true. We are, I I often say like, you know, we are like the original biohackers because we will just do anything, anything to feel better. Yeah. So, so let's think about if someone stops the pill. Okay. You know, the, the, I mean, what it should be prescribed for is contraception. Are there other ways that we can either naturally uh, practice birth control? I mean, you've touched on some of them. You've touched on the copper IUD, you touched on the nuvarin. Mm -hmm. One of the things you had mentioned, you sort of just touched on it, but I want to circle back is the uh, is, is FAM, so Fertility Awareness Method. Can you describe, I don't think, I mean, I, I'm going to say as well, I've never heard of FAM before understanding your work. So let's mm. just for everybody talk about Fertility Awareness Method and some of the other ways that we can prevent unwanted pregnancy.
1: Totally. I think the way to, to be most successful with FAM is to work with a FAM educator. Your doctor is very unlikely to be well-versed in FAM. Mm-hmm. And for people who are like, what's FAM? Fertility awareness method. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, it's very rare. I mean, the way- and it's
0: European. It's more common, I believe, I think in Europe than it is in North America. Is that right?
1: I believe that's true. Um, you know, it's a very different way that they, you know, approach women's health altogether. In fact, Natural Cycles was first approved in Europe. That's a, a femtech app device that helps with fertility awareness method. Mm-hmm. That was first uh, approved as a contraceptive in Europe. And then it was later approved by the FDA. And so uh, I, think, I think it's great. Daisy and Natural Cycles are like the two leaders in terms of a thermometer that hooks up to an app. There's other apps as well where you can plug your data in. And I think apps are great because they take away the math, but I don't think that we should ever take a backseat to our reproductive health. And that you still need to pay attention to your signs and symptoms. Because if for some reason you didn't take that temperature at the exact time and, and do that right, but you have fertile cervical mucus, pay attention to the fertile cervical mucus. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. fertility awareness method is not the rhythm method. um, And it's not the calendar method. And those are definitely, if you want to fail and get pregnant, those those are the methods. (laughs) And so the calendar method is like, oh, every woman ovulates on day 14. So if it's day 14, like I'll probably be ovulating. Not mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. and then you know the the rhythm method that's not really grounded in science. Where the fertility awareness method is coupling. Um, so we're going to take a look at your symptoms and your your body temperature. So every single morning, eyes pop open. You use your thermometer and you take your temperature and you record it. There will be very slight changes. When you're going to ovulate, and you know if you, uh, there's some women who, when they're trying to figure this out, it takes a good three months to really get all that data and figure it out. And there's some women who like to also pee on LH test strips. You can get those on Amazon as well, so they can see when their LH surges and get more tuned in. Not totally necessary though. Now, fertility awareness method is based on the premise that you're going to only ovulate once in your cycle and that sperm can live like five to six days. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you'll see really almost like a week-long window that's your fer- fertility window. And and women get confused about this because they're like, wait, I, I'm only ovulating. My egg lives 24 hours. Why is there this fertile window? Because sperm be tricky. And they will live.
0: And, <laughs> and they can live. Design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's by design. Libido goes up, you have sex, you capture sperm. And then when you drop an egg their sperm waiting to catch it. Mm-hmm. And that's really important from an evolutionary perspective if, you know, men were going out and hunting, presumably they might not come back, then ha- having this method so that you would be able to become pregnant was a great way to ensure the future of the human species. And here we are. Now, with fertility awareness method, you do have to take your temperature at the same time every day. It can be more difficult for women with polycystic ovarian syndrome or night shift workers, which is not impossible, you want to work with a fam educator. And then you're getting in tune with your body. So you're looking for fertile cervical mucus. That's that egg white gloop, you know, gloopy stuff. It's gloopy mm-hmm. a word um, that shows up in your underwear. And, uh, and in addition to that, you're, you're going to see that like your libido goes up. So you're more interested in sex. Um, that's, that usually precedes all of, all of the physiological changes. You'll see a spike in your temperature. That's really estrogen and LH, um, causing these changes. And then that's when the egg, when you actually ovulate and for, you can feel, uh, cervical position changes. That one takes a lot more practice. It's a lot more tricky. And honestly, I don't have any patient that's ever been a fan of that. Like mm-hmm. at first, they're like, "I'm kind of curious," but then, like, yeah, you know, I imagine, I imagine my life. You're a busy modern woman, and like you, you checked, you checked everything else. Do you have time to be filling around for your cervix? Maybe not. Especially like if you're a mom already, you never get time alone in the bathroom. There's no <laughs>
0: privacy. I was gonna say, it's always yeah. threat of invasion. They're in the shower with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. yeah and what's the efficacy rate for when when fam is done appropriately what is the um what is the efficacy rate there?
1: Yeah, that's the interesting thing is that I mean, when I was in natural medical school, unlike most med schools, you're taught this method is a sure shot way that your pre- pre- patient's gonna get pregnant. But as it turns out, with perfect use, it's over ninety nine percent effective. And as I wow. said,
0: with and you pill, said birth control is how much?
1: Ninety one percent with typical use. Otherwise it's wow. like ninety nine point nine if you use it perfectly. Right. But what I find with FAM is that women are really, really invested. Like they're not taking that back seat. They're not like, oh, I just popped a pill. It'll be fine. They're like, mm, I need to know where I'm at. And then, you know, when you're in that fertile window, that's where you use barrier methods or you use, you do something else. Um, but it's really important, I think, for all women to understand that if you're not in a monogamous relationship, the pill, IUDs, patch, double shot, they're not going to protect you against sexually transmitted infections. And that's right. something that often gets glazed over. It's like Hi, you're going to college. Here's your pill. Go on your merry way. Don't get pregnant. Study hard. And yet we do need to also talk about the fact that you know, chlamydia, gonorrhea, yeah, we have antibiotics to resolve that. HIV, HPV, no. We Mm -hmm. don't have medications to resolve those. And so it's really important for women to have that informed consent again and to be in control of their fertility and their sexual health.
0: Yeah. So that's like birth control, but that's also... To your point, disease control as well. When we're talking about barrier methods yeah. as well, yeah, I love, love, love the idea that uh, you said this before that hormones are your superpowers, and mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think that they are at the, you know, really at the essence of your physical and emotional well being. And when you, you know, if you are someone who has been on the on the birth control pill for years, decades, whatever it is, and your symptoms. Um, are some of the ones that you described. I think that that is just, if we can reframe it a little bit as yeah. a invitation to heal, right? Um, I've heard you talk about you know, the symptoms that you had prior to going on the pill, really being exacerbated in that four to six month window after uh, cessation of the pill. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If you have muted the body for however long, there's going to be this mm-hmm. amplification of this message. Uh, we've been going at this now for two hours and 10 minutes. And I feel like we're really, I could, I could talk to you for the next, (laughs) I could talk to you for the next 12 hours. As I'm wrapping this up, I love your message so much because it's all about informed consent and empowering women and the men who love them to make better decisions around reproduction. And I think, you know, when we're talking about what health and vitality mean, it's about having better sex, it's about reducing inflammation, it's about encouraging healthy brain aging. And I think just really having the courage to listen to your body and, and to heal.
1: Totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was yeah. good to see you in Canada. Yeah. So
0: great to see you. you. you and if I if far, I right? wanted to point if I wanted to point people where they can find you, so we're going to link to your book. Uh, you know the Amazon link, but is there is there other places that I I can be linking to to have people uh, check you out?
1: Totally. So you can find me at drbrayton.com, D R B R I G H T E N dot com. It's Brighton like the sun. And it's women call <laughs> women call yes. my website the Google of Women's Health, which I crack up, but they're I like anything you need to know and get answers on, like it lives there and yeah, it's that's pretty accurate. We're, we're, we're still working on building even more resources. And then of course you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Jolene Brighton. That's my favorite place to play. And then we also have YouTube videos. Uh, you can just find Dr. Jolene Brighton on YouTube because I know everybody learns differently and not everybody wants to sit down and read articles. So we also have videos as well to help educate you.
0: And you are very active on Instagram. I often have a fun banter with you uh, on social. So it's always, always good to see the, the stuff that you're putting out. It's really good stuff.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much.
0: You're so welcome. Thank you so much for our conversation today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find all this information at our website, bettershow.co. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-S-H-O-W.co. Maybe the simplest way to keep in touch with me is to sign up for my email. When you go to bettershow.co, there'll be a little pop-up and I send a weekly email on all things mindset, nutrition, fitness, uh, longevity, aging, things that are capturing my attention that week in a newsletter that we call Brain Candy. You can find me on social on Twitter. It's Doctor underscore Stephanie. On Instagram, I am Doctor Stephanie Estima. That's S T E P H A N I E E S T I M A. And finally, a legal and medical disclaimer: This podcast is for general information only, and the advice, discussions, and recommendations that we discuss on this podcast do not replace. Medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare professional's advice or care. There is no doctor patient relationship that has been established in the consumption of this podcast, and the use and implementation of the information contained here are at the sole discretion of the listener. The content in this podcast is not intended to be used as a substitute for any professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment.